This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, The Lathe of Heaven. George, I know that I can learn to harness your power, but you must give me time. That's no use. We haven't got the right. We have a duty. Why do you resist? Why do you fear your own power? Because it doesn't work. You change one thing and everything changes. The plague didn't solve anything. We're closer to war now than we ever have been. I can't let you use me anymore. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that gets by with a little help from its friends. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? I can tell you what's real with one word. Antwerp. I think that's a pretty good, uh, well, I want to say safe word. It's not a safe word. It's a dream word. What would you call it? I guess, yeah, a keyword that wakes you up from uh, hypnosis. Mm-hmm. It was pretty good. I, I was also like, Antwerp, great. Don't say Antwerp enough in my life. Antwerp. Well, this week, uh, we're going to get into a TV movie. But first, I got to say, we're joined by a guest today. Hillary, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, well, uh, I'm excited to have you because um, this week we're doing a TV movie adaptation of an Ursula Le Guin story, uh, The Lathe of Heaven. And I happen to know that uh, you're somewhat of an Ursula K. Le Guin stan, perhaps? I am. I watched, uh, and I think at one point you called me an expert, which I am because I watched one documentary about her. (laughs) That's all it (laughs) takes. Yeah. This is why I know that, is because you watched that documentary. So now, to me, you're the foremost authority. I'm an expert. Um, and actually, since we started talking about this, I did go and read um, The Wizard of Earthsea. Oh, yeah. Which is, like, probably her most famous book. And it's definitely a YA book. But <laughs> I really enjoyed it as a 31-year-old. Hey, I mean, there's nothing wrong with YA books. They, uh, they're popular for a reason. It's just nice to learn about wizards. Jordan, you always say that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, that's my autobiography title (laughs) Well, uh, before we get into the episode, though I would like to know a little bit about uh, your history Or your uh, personal preference toward uh, television science fiction Since that's the theme of this podcast Did you watch a lot, or are you you a bit of a neophyte around TV sci-fi? It certainly, I can't say I've watched a lot of, like, TV movies um, Which is what we're chatting about today we watched um, a little bit of Star Trek when I was a kid. My dad is definitely a sci-fi man. <laughs> um, so, like, we watched Star Wars a lot growing up. And um, as an adult, like, I watched a bit of Battlestar Galactica. And um, Doctor Who we watched. Oh, whoa, Doctor Who. I, that's, that, that's a place I haven't even gone to. It's really good. I can't say I've seen all of it because that's crazy. <laughs> a lot of it. A lot of it. But I watched the David Tennant seasons and the Matt Smith seasons, and they're wonderful. This is the same sort of level of special effects, I think. The Lathe of Heaven and uh, totally. and uh, Doctor Who. Yeah, and like, you know, we'll talk about this, I assume. But given the budget cuts, I don't think it's such a bad way to handle, you know, huge ideas just to be like, he's in a blue tube. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about it because this movie was made in 1980, and uh, I, I dug around a little bit, mostly on Wikipedia, of course. Um, of course, it was uh, it was made by a PBS affiliate, um, WNET, in New York City as part of their experimental television lab. So this was part of a weird program they're doing to see if they could bring, I guess, sci-fi adaptations to TV. And the budget was 250k, and uh, that's of course in 1980 dollars. So I think I did the I did the adjustment for inflation. I think it's about six hundred thousand dollars today. So I was a little less impressed once I realized how much money it was today. That's still that's, that's pretty that's it's, pretty small. It's still pretty small budget for sure, and they make it go a long way. And they shot it in two weeks, so. The, the fact that they pulled That's this crazy. quality together in that amount of time with that amount of money is very impressive. Though the directors, I guess, were a couple of video artists bef- uh, who came in to do it. So it's, they came from an interesting background for visuals, which I think really is what helps make the budget stretch as far as it does. Mm-hmm. And um, just a little thing for Jordan here, because it was released January 9th, 1980. I guess Jordan and the listeners, of course. We can't forget about the listeners. <laughs> but uh, this came out... Two weeks before the premiere of a show we've watched before. I'm going to guess Galactica 1980. Dead on the money, my friend. Uh-huh. I'm going to argue this is much better than Galactica 1980. It is funny to like pair these two ideas together. Like One of the like most ambitious, smartest shows we've watched with one of the least ambitious, dumbest shows we've watched. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But uh, yeah, why don't we get into it? Here's the IMDb summary for The Lathe of Heaven. In a highly controlled and overpopulated society, a man who has terrifying dreams that affect reality is assigned a psychiatrist who takes advantage of the situation. And that was courtesy of Chris Kirk. Chris Kirk. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, thanks. First person to ever thank our IMDb person. You're so polite. He's not listening. He's dead. <laughs> he may not be dead. I don't know if he's dead. You imagine everything on IMDb is like ancient text. Ancient text. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah. Um, well, the movie opens, I guess, as we sort of talked about with that uh, video artist directors, it opens on a very, like, impressionistic montage of, like, sort of water that I felt a little bit like a s- sequence of space shots that, like, transitions into the sea roiling, then nuclear bombs exploding, and we, and we then meet our protagonist, George Orr, as he kind of wanders the post-apocalyptic ruins of a city. And uh, he quickly collapses and euphorically mutters yes. And we hard cut to this uh, George Orr waking up from a bad dream in his uh, near future Portland, Oregon apartment. What do you guys think of that apartment? I mean, it's it's not huge, but it could be worse. I think it could be worse. I like that the cupboards in the future were exactly like cupboards, but they were just a little bit more angular. I was a big <laughs> fan of that. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm a big fan of that, too, that... That opening shot of his like tiny kitchenette with those weird angular cupboards and like just like one tiny appliance, it's like oh we're in the future. Look how small everything is. And then they turn the camera around, but the entire apartment's like cracked and water damaged. And you're like oh he has a shitty apartment in the future. I like I thought yeah. the set design really established the world I was in yeah. in like eight seconds in a way that I'm just like wow good job everybody. And I think it's 2002, right? Oh, did you catch a date? I don't know if that's clear in the film, but yeah. In I the think book, it says the near future. So maybe in the book it is right, 2002. In the book it's 2002, which is interesting because, and the other like number fact that is just part of what happens when you try and set something in the near future is the population of the world, I think is 7 billion, <laughs> which is like unlivable. <laughs> Se- 7 billion people. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yes, uh, he's in this in this rundown apartment in the future, 
Uh, it's always raining here in Portland and uh, very over overpopulated is what we're supposed to we get in this sort of first few moments here of, of this near future that is very much a, not a dystopia because it seems to be functioning okay but like certainly not the best place to live perhaps mm-hmm. and George of course is going to go see and uh, let me see if I can pronounce this word honorologist uh, I guess a psychiatrist who specializes in dreams that sounds good to me <laughs> right They're pretty close yeah and He's going to see the psychiatrist because he's required to do voluntary therapy after attempting suicide and uh, getting charged for scamming the auto pharmacy to get the drugs for the attempt. So he's on probation and his probation is, you need some therapy, my friend. As soon as he goes to see his therapist, which we're going to meet in the next scene, does the therapist offer him cigarettes, right? Yeah. And and I just want to see if you you both caught this. He offers him cigarettes and he goes, no, no, I don't like Triggs or Denigs. Is that what he said? I think he said he had two. He had two kinds of cigarettes with different tips. One was a, uh, one a was a, no, it was a trank. Oh, a trank. Okay. Yeah. And the other one was like a non-nick, I think. So it had no nicotine or something. Oh. I also caught that. I'm just like, whoa, fancy cigarettes in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thankfully, we know he's a hero because he doesn't smoke. Yeah, I'm not a smoker. But when you offer someone else a cigarette, do you often offer two types of cigarettes? If you're a good host, you do. I guess, I guess. Do you want a DeMaurier or are you more of an American spirit man? There you go. I know know all the kinds of You can think of two kinds of cigarettes. I know, right? Pretty good. But yes, this therapist he's going to meet is Dr. William Haber, who seems like a very basic psychiatrist. He seems very much to want to help old George here. And George sort of explains to himself he attempted suicide to stop the dreams he's having because um, as they sort of start calling them very quickly there... George believes he has effective dreaming, which is essentially when he dreams, his dreams rewrite reality and no one notices but him. Yeah, it doesn't only alter what's happening now, it alters the past. So what he has changed has always been. Yeah, it's a very, I, I, I was just like, oh, I don't think I've seen this ever as a series before or a show, like a man who changes reality with his thoughts. <laughs> and sort of to explain this, he explains this. It started at 16 years old. And he goes into this very grim backstory, which, wow, a lot going on here. But his, his aunt got a divorce and moved in with his family. And while she was there, she'd always, like, joke around and kind of, like, flirt with a young George, I guess, <laughs> as, like, because she's newly divorced, I guess. Um, so one night, being a 16-year-old, he made a very aggressive pass at his aunt. Yeah. He tried to cop a feel. This is super interesting to me in that the book is very close to this. Like, Ursula was listed as a creative consultant, and it shows. Like, it's a very, very faithful adaptation. And there were only a couple minutes where I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting change. And this is one of them (laughs) in that in the book, it's very explicit from George that his aunt is coming onto him. Right. And, like, his aunt is kind of looking to abuse him and he is afraid of her i thought that's where it was going to i thought she was the aggressor but when they do this thing where he, he <laughs> makes the pass a very interesting change to make really uh cops a feel and then get slapped and i'm just like oh wow what a what a grim beginning to this man's life <laughs> i think it would have seemed creepier though if they had had a younger actor playing the part because i think the star what's his name bruce davison He's, yeah. he's probably, I would say at this point, he's probably in his early 20s, right? Mid-20s, the actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when he's playing a 17-year-old, he still looks like a guy in his mid-20s. It's not like, it doesn't seem that creepy. But if he was like, you know, actually 16 years old, and I don't know, maybe it would seem a little worse. <laughs> I thought, uh, 
Innocent hijinks. <laughs> Jordan's just like, this is just growing up. Yeah. Just, a, just a light incest. Yeah. But yes, he's, he's slapped by his aunt and uh, he goes to bed. And that night he tells the psychiatrist he dreamed that his aunt was in a car accident. And when he woke in the morning, his mother received a letter that his aunt was killed in a car accident in L.A. and had never, in fact, moved in with him after her divorce. So he, this is his first instance of waking up, finding out no one has any recollection of his aunt moving in with them. Mm-hmm. And now she's been killed. And his effective dreaming basically rewrote reality to prevent her from coming into their lives. This raises a question, and this might be for you, Hillary, as the resident expert yes, on all you. thing uh, uh, Ursula Le Guin. This is the first dream where we're going to get several dreams as this goes on. And they're all sort of presented in a, I don't know, slightly uh, symbolic, esoteric kind of way. Mm-hmm. Is that how they were in the in the book? Because I think it's actually an effective way in this movie to show something without having to show it. Because obviously the dreams start getting bigger and the ideas of what they're changing are bigger. So they sort of keep them symbolic and you find out later what the result is. Is that is that how it was in the book? It is and it sort of isn't in that... In the book, we stay with Haber during the dream sequences. Mm. So we don't go into George's mind. We just see Haber and what's happening in his reality. Um, But he does often ask George when he wakes up, what did you dream of? And it is that sort of like, I think, not to jump ahead, but in one of these, he mentions he's having like a picnic with Genghis Khan. And there's, in the book, he sees the horse and Haber and JFK. Right, right, right. So there will be just sort of like little elements that he interprets in a different way but yeah i think they did a good job of visualizing it yeah i mean the dream sequences are very much kind of that like dream logic you're only getting glimpses of things and like Mm -hmm. we as an audience they're very evocative but you don't really know what they're going to change till you kind of get that moment when he wakes up Mm -hmm. um of course right now he's telling Dr. Haber the story, and Dr. Haber, of course, doesn't really believe in him, the idea that he has effective dreaming. He believes he's probably some sort of schizophrenic. I believe he writes in his notes, possible schizophrenic. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Haber, as a dream doctor, he's built himself a uh, device that he seems to have cobbled together from a variety of, like, uh, monitoring items. It's fine. It's like that (laughs) weird, like, mad scientist sort of setup he has in his, his lab. But basically, he's going to put george to sleep and monitors rem sleep to see if he sees anything unusual going on during that and to do that he'll need to hypnotize him to suggest a dream but dr haber has perhaps the most aggressive form of hypnosis i've ever seen performed yeah he so in the book they talk they touch on this a little bit too which is that george is a bit resistant to hypnosis and that normally i think they mention it too in the film that he's like they're pressed for time (laughs) <laughs> so it's a, a faster way to hypnotize somebody. It's essentially like grabbing their throat, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 hypnosis by chokehold. Yeah, exactly. He's very good at it, though. Every time he does it, he doesn't like it. It would be awkward if he went to grab your throat and then just squeezed it and choked you a little bit. And he's like, oh, sorry, I was just trying to knock you out. And then he did it again. But he's effective 100% every time. He yeah, grabs yeah. you by the throat. You're in a dream state. You're out. It yeah. is like a UFC move or something. It's like you get punched in the throat suddenly and you're like... You're, yeah. you're under hypnosis. It's over. Uh, made me laugh so much. But anyway, while he's under hypnosis, um, he basically suggests to George a dream he should have so he can monitor his sleep while he has a dream. And as you mentioned, Hillary, the first dream he suggests is to just have a dream about a horse. Just a horse having a nice time. And, uh, you know, we get a little sequ- dream sequence where we see a horse running through a field in a city and in a paddock. And when George wakes up, 
he looks at the wall of Dr. Haber's office and uh, what was a picture of Mount Hood has now become a picture of a horse or more specifically the triple crown winner Tammany Hall three-time winner (laughs) everyone knows this and uh, when he says oh uh, you changed that picture while I was asleep I guess that's part of this therapy and the uh, doctor of course is just like what are you talking about I've always had a picture of that horse on my wall it's never not been there did you notice the other small change that had happened? I mean, obviously, as things go, things start changing more and more. But after this first dream, the the doctor's sweater changed from a gray sweater to a cream sweater. I didn't no, know. I missed that. And I like that it wasn't, it didn't even get that much better. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. you know what? This color is a little bit better for him. <laughs> That's really good, though. I really like the idea. It's like, there were some subtle changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first dream, just a little bit. It's like, this cuts better on you. Um, and of course, George, you know, he's stuck in this for court therapy. So he returns the next day for a second round of this uh, hypno dream therapy. This time, Dr. Haber suggests a new dream. He's just like, hey, it's can be really rainy and smoggy here in Portland. So why don't you have a beautiful dream about a nice day so we can like improve your mood a little bit. However, this time when Dr. Haber has him under, he notices his equipment's giving a bit of a weird reading. I believe the uh, the little brain on one of the screens starts flashing red. He's like, mm, that's weird. The brain shouldn't be flashing red. <laughs> well, everything should be blue. That's how in this movie, you know, everything's going well. Mm-hmm. It's all blue color. So if anything but, but blue, there's trouble. <laughs> You're in trouble now. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Haber races up to the roof of his uh, building where he witnesses the clouds parting and the sun coming out and the basically weather clearing up miraculously. And as he returns to his office to uh, wake George, he stops by his receptionist desk and asks her to call Portland Weather just to get a little sense of this. And this is where we, he, he hears from the Portland Weather's automated greeting that uh, this is Portland, the Sunshine City, and that it's never rained here in the last two years. And this is kind of, I guess, the moment we're supposed to understand perhaps Haber is noticing reality has changed. This is one of my favorite moments in the costuming in that did you notice that his receptionist was in pants before? Yeah. And now she's in that cute little short suit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys are so good. I missed all of this. Because it's sunny now. And Haber sort of reacts to her like he's never known that she had legs before. <laughs> Like, when he sees her, he's like, whoa. He's like, oh, wow, I'm glad I hired <laughs> yeah, you. Like, yeah. Like, I couldn't tell when you had pants on that you were a woman. <laughs> you look like a man. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. I had a question, though. And this is something that's going to come up, obviously, later on. Is it explained in the book why anyone who seems to be in the room with George has a memory of the past as it was before the change happened? Because I'm assuming all of the other citizens of the city or the state or the world or whatever it is, have no memory of this, right? Yeah, that's the understanding of it, is that uh, George is the only one who remembers, but because Haber is there with him at the moment of the change, then he also has a memory of it. And it is a little bit more explicit in the book that you get, because there's not a ton of dialogue in the book. Like, a lot of this is internal. And you get Haber's reaction when he sees the picture of the horse that he's like, shit. Oh, really? Is it a horse? Yeah. Like he, he does have a moment of like, wait a minute, is that right? But it's sort of harder for him to accept it. So there's sort of a period in the book where you're not really sure if Haber believes him or not. So if the secretary had been in the room and Haber was out of the room, he would have come in wearing shorts and she would have been like, check the gams on Haber. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. Uh, this is the moment where he starts noticing something really is going, like effective dreaming seems to actually be happening. It's very interesting. Like, he very quickly formulates, like, this is a very powerful thing. And he, he very quickly, we get a clear idea that he is like, I'm going to need to use this power basically to correct everything wrong with the Earth. Like, he's he wants to save humanity, save the Earth from its current trajectory. And he sees George as the conduit to do that. I mean, this is the, I think that, you know, it's not a subtle book necessarily, but it's kind of becomes about, this movie's about his hubris to like make grand changes on a scale and how they work or don't work out as that case may be. But this is kind of the moment when I think this occurs to him. Like he, he keys into the opportunity immediately. This man is just like, I see a chance. I'm going to take it. Absolutely. He's a real entrepreneur. Yeah. I think like, he and Elon Musk is a good way to yeah, think of him. Perfect. Like it's like somebody who started with really good intentions and maybe got a little lost along the way. His uh, his office keeps getting better though. I wrote it down now as it's future fancy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's just it. Uh, he wakes George up and Dr. Haber basically t- pretends like nothing's changed. He's going to spend like a portion of this movie just gaslighting George into like mm-hmm. pretending he doesn't remember that anything's changed. But George does when he, George, I really like, but George gets on a tram to go home. And on the tram home, he hears these two women complaining about all the sunshine now and how much they hate it. And it occurs to him at this moment, he's like, wait, Dr. Haber said something that makes me think he maybe realizes more than he's saying. And so we get this idea that George is perhaps on to Dr. Haber and that Dr. Mm -hmm. Haber may be attempting to use him to his own benefit. And to this end... George goes to see a civil liberties lawyer, which I thought was, like, fantastic. I'm just like, here's a man who's worried his effective dreaming that changed reality is going to be abused (laughs) by his psychiatrist, which really is a violation of his civil liberties. (laughs) I should see a lawyer about this. Yeah, it's and, like, at least in the book, it's explicitly the ACLU. Like, it's like, we never exist in a continuum where you don't go to the ACLU when you need a good lawyer. <laughs> it was, I actually kind of liked it because there's a whole bunch of little things in the world building here about like, like he has to sign a consent form to get hypnosis. There's like this real idea that there are checks and measures in this world that mm-hmm. like Haber has to like deal with, which is just such an odd, you don't usually, usually in these movies or that we watch, it's like the military is the only solution. And this one is just like, you got to get yourself a good civil liberties lawyer because <laughs> yeah. your court appointed psychiatrist is probably abusing you and you should probably be appointed a new psychiatrist yeah. because this is an unethical man. So the only opportunity is to go see a lawyer. And this is uh, Heather Lalash, I believe is her name. And she'll be basically the third character in this. And um, she's obviously a little skeptical, but she's a good person there to protect people's rights. So she's going to start looking into it. And of course, George still has to go to therapy in the meantime. And this is on his third trip in, Dr. Haber, having slightly changed the world into being sunnier and having a horse picture in as well, <laughs> just like puts the pedal to the yeah. metal and's like, this time when you my suggested dream is, what if I had a cool dream therapy institute that's like seven stories tall and I was a very wealthy, powerful man? How about that dream? Mm-hmm. And uh, when George wakes up, he's got a great new office. Mm-hmm. Which also is like a beautiful set. Whatever that building is, it's gorgeous. The location choices in this movie are fantastic. They did an amazing job. Yeah, well, I mean, we should say the whole city is that very, it's the futuristic look, but it's a, that sort of brutalist architecture everything's Mm -hmm. very angular with small windows and odd shapes but i did think to both your point all the sets look great because they're clearly real locations so Mm -hmm. they have 
a really just big, spacious, empty lobby that they can have conversations in and things. And everything seems very open and slightly futuristic, as seen from 1980. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I did like this, too, when George wakes up and he's in this, like, brand new, like, fancy office and, like... Dr. Haber's having to still pretend like he's like doesn't notice the changes, but like the, that actor's face is great because he's just like looking around. He's like, "Holy crap! I really scored big this time. Got to <laughs> play it down though, so George doesn't know." He doesn't get to give his opinion though on how things get decorated. You know what I mean? Like he's like, "I hope it's better. I hope it's better." He's like, "Oh, thank God they put that wall with knobs and tubes on it." <laughs> I mean, and Dr. Haber is not the not a self serving. He doesn't really want to be a self serving man because he yes, he builds himself an institute with great influence in this dream. But he also gives George something he's always wanted, a cabin by the ocean. Yeah, George's desires are a lot um, simpler, I guess. And that's how we understand he's a good man. Like, he doesn't want to rule the world. He just would like to have a cottage he could go to sometimes. (laughs) The thing about his cottage, I noticed that, like, it's not even just, like, a solitary cottage on this, like, beautiful coast or anything. It's, like, a cottage with, like, 15 other cottages. I'm like, man, eh, it's going to stop being fun real fast when those annoying neighbors come by. <laughs> I did. This was this was great, though. This, George, George's only dream is this cottage. And when he wakes up from this dream, he's like, I want a cottage from the government lottery. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's at this point that uh, the lawyer, Lilash, uh, she comes back around. She's basically come up with a plan to see sort of like look into whether George is being abused by his therapist. And basically she's going to, when she finds out that uh, Dr. Haber has been using kind of an experimental treatment machine during their therapy sessions, this is at least enough cause for her to come in as an observer for the state just to see like, make sure this experimental treatment is ethical kind of thing. So her plan is she'll show up to his next therapy session as an observer for, I guess the health department or, or some sort of government agency just to sort of gather evidence on George's behalf to see if anything unethical is happening in these therapy sequences. She doesn't believe in effective dreaming, despite the fact she's going to the fanciest, like she doesn't realize his office has become the fanciest thing on earth. But uh, And so we get to this next sort of therapy session where, of course, Haber's annoyed that he has an observer uh, to see his, uh, what is he called, the dream augmentation device he's mm-hmm. built. But regulations are regulations. And they have this really funny tete-a-tete here, uh, little hash and uh, little H and um, Haber. And I'm just going to give you one quote because I just thought this quote was like very funny to me for some reason. Haber's talking about uh, psych- uh, psychiat- uh, psych- psychiatric medicine. He's just like, his quote is, uh, neurotics build castles in the sky. Psychotics live in them. And uh, Lalesh retorts, and psychiatrists collect the rent. I liked that too. <laughs> like, yeah, you slap down Haber, you slap him right down. It's how I know she's feisty. It's true. She's very feisty. But in this this dream sequence, George, George is strapped into his typical uh, hypnosis therapy. And the suggested dream today is that he'd do something about uh, solving overpopulation in the world. And uh, this is a cool dream sequence, actually. He dreams that himself, Haber, and Lalesh are at this long dinner table just full of people having a nice, like, fancy dinner. And as the dream continues, they start getting covered in, like, people at the table start getting covered in shrouds and cobwebs start appearing. And there's this, like, very ominous feel to it with a door Mm -hmm. opening and light glowing in. But I I wasn't sure kind of how it was going to pan out. And when he wakes from the dream, he immediately realizes a plague wiped out six billion people on Earth five years ago. Yeah, that's a it's a big one. It's probably his biggest one. <laughs> it's I mean, I gotta say, I was just like, whoa, uh, Haber, you you're just moving on this. You just killed six billion people. I'm gonna defend Haber though. Silver lining, less traffic. <laughs> <laughs> 
it works out pretty well for everybody, but I think it also speaks to like, Haber doesn't say to him, kill six billion people. He says, do something about overpopulation. And then how it pans out is how it pans out. Like he doesn't, I don't think he thinks going into it that that's exactly what's going to happen. Absolutely. And I mean, that becomes part of Haber's thing too, is that George's subconscious is an imperfect device to like attempt these changes because uh, you don't know how he's going to interpret your suggestion every time. And mm-hmm. this time you kill six billion people. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm going to say he could try to be a little bit more specific. It should be like, OK, we're going yeah, to do, do world peace, but not with aliens. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, because Lelaish was here sort of monitoring this session, which I thought was one of the best moments of someone having this realization is we get to watch her have the actress deal with two conflicting memories mm-hmm. a memory of a world with six billion people and a world where a massive tragedy struck five five years ago and lalish is just like devastated by this and she basically has to leave the room because like she's got these two conflicting ideas of what has happened in this world and we get to see kind of this new world outside it was great they you know in that first sort of 15 minutes of the movie they do a great job with lots of extras it's really overpopulated so when you step outside into this like devastated world it feels so empty and they did such a great job of like creating these this dichotomy of this reality change yeah there's a good scene too where i think i don't know if it's when she goes to see him or it's just a establishing shot but you have there's a a shot of the building he's now living in because he's now living in a nicer place i don't know if it's the building has gotten better or he's in a better place but you only see his name and one other person's listed on the directory and i thought that was a good quick way of showing there's very few people in this building now yeah it's 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 very well done and i mean Kind of what happens from here is Dr. Haber's still playing dumb about whether he realizes what's happening or not. But, you know, George is pretty suspicious and they kind of do finally have a confrontation about like, are you doing this on purpose? And Dr. Haber comes clean finally just like, I'm trying to solve society's problems. I was, he doesn't quite apologize for gaslighting him, but like, (laughs) I'm trying to fix things and this is what we're doing together. Like we're a team. And as George points out, he's like, we've alleviated, you know, overpopulation, but the world's not better. Like we're as we're closer to war than we've ever been in this planet. Like these dreams aren't working. But you know, Doctor Haber's not 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 uh not, not yeah he's he's not gonna stop. He basically when they're having this confrontation, he like chokehold hypnotizes him in the hallway, like yes. a forced hypnotism in the hallway. And they're they're gonna give it the old college try one more time. And this time, the suggested dream is, hey, what about peace on Earth and no more war? Hmm. Which, of course, George proceeds to have a dream about aliens invading the moon and Earth uniting against the aliens. I thought of the, all the visual effects. This is probably the one that has aged the the worst, worst of the... Sure. I don't know what it is. The superimposing of these sort of like light alien ships flying around. It, it doesn't look great, but I mean, it is what it is for this show. I mean, yeah, it, it's probably, you know, the more difficult pull. They have to show up basically uh, in his dream, aliens invading the moon. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's mostly like light uh, effects, like flashing on the moon. We do get to see like a brief shot of what one of these aliens looks like, which I like the design of. They look a little it looks bit like a turtle, a turtle with a glowing head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how they're described. Oh. Is they're in these turtle suits. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, to me, it reminded me a little bit of, uh, do you remember the, na- like, the engineer, the navigator alien from Aliens 1? It's like the dead creature they find inside of the al- the ship. And, like, it looks a little Geiger-esque. It very much looks like the alien in that, like, chair, mm-hmm. if that's a, a movie you remember. And the aliens all have nice, soft, dulcet tones to their voice. Yeah, and this, we can talk more about this, but um, 
I think with the aliens, you get the suggestion that because Orr has brought them into the world, they have this connection. Right. And because because Orr is our man, we kind of like the aliens because Orr <laughs> likes them. That question is raised in the movie, too. It's just like, I believe George says, he's like, what did you drag out of the deepest recesses of my mind to invade the moon? He's just like, mm-hmm. if this stuff only happens because I dream it, it's just like, what kind of freaky monsters did I just dream of? Which, and it makes sense, right, that they'd be in these turtle suits because it's it's something that the human mind can imagine. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was kind of fun, these little turtle suits. Um, but at any rate, Doctor, when he wakes up, George, Dr. Haber is furious that the best yeah. way he could think of world peace was to have aliens invade the moon. Dr. Haber could not be less happy with how George interprets his message. I think it's good from, if you look at from Haber's perspective, he's like, I'm doing all the work here. I'm coming up with these ideas. I'm trying to solve problems and you're ruining it with your superpower. It's true. You're just, you're, you, it's your fault. It's not my fault. I have great ideas. Yeah. I said peace on earth. I didn't say turtle aliens. <laughs> Uh, and I gotta say, like, I'm not sure what the time code is at this point in this movie, but this is still, like, mid-second act, and I'm like, the world has now been invaded, like, the mo- like so much changes so quickly in these dreams. Like, we're mm-hmm. on Dream 4, and there are now aliens on the moon, and I was just, like, really impressed by how fast this was going. The pacing is, again, like, it's a very faithful adaptation. Like, this is only, like, a 200-page book. Oh, so wow. So we really do just motor through <laughs> Like, they get they get to the fun so fast. It's great. Um, after kind of this forced dream that causes aliens to fade to the moon, George sort of disappears. He's like, that's it. We're done with dreaming. Mm-hmm. No more. This is my breaking point. And uh, Lalash goes to try to track him down because, obviously, she remembers this, apoc- uh, this uh, plague he brought to this world. And, of course, she can't find George at his much nicer and, uh, as you said, Jordan, much less crowded apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, but, thankfully, his, his, his nosy neighbor's like, he's probably at his uh, government lottery cabin. I'd, I'd head out there. Do you think he was jealous of that uh, government lottery cabin? 100%. Yeah. If, you, if, you're, if your neighbor won the government lottery, be so mad. I th- <laughs> actually, I don't know if this is clear in the movie, but he's the landlord. Oh, really? So he's got that whole building if he wants it. Yeah, but he's not renting them out. That's true. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so she heads out to uh, basically this oceanfront view of this of this cottage. And she basically wants, she remembers the plague happening. And when she goes to find George, she's just like, oh, uh, BTW, aliens in the moon? That was me, too. <laughs> 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 she's like, mm, makes sense. I should have I thought of that. <laughs> yeah. um, but she basically is like, I want to help you. And I've got an idea. I've seen hypnosis done before. I've witnessed it happen in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I could do it. So I don't see why I can't just hypnotize you. So why don't I hypnotize you and suggest that you dream of nothing? And I was like, no good. He's going to dream about Seinfeld now. <laughs> Which this, this actor was on Seinfeld playing the, uh, yeah. the chairman of the Susan Ross Foundation. So I'm mm-hmm. like, in this dream, it's just the entire the entirety of Seinfeld plays in his mind. Yeah. But no, he's also the gooey guy from X Men too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's in so. I I went through his IMDb. It is crazy. And I literally last night I watched an episode of Star Trek Enterprise. He was in it. He was just in the episode I watched last he's night. He's great. He's got like a thousand credits. I actually remembered him most from when I was a kid. He was uh, George Henderson in the TV version of Harry and the Hendersons. Aww. Yeah. I, that's a great part for him. Absolutely. I was looking at that too. He's doing Harry and the Hendersons at the same time he's doing a Robert Altman movie. <laughs> what a career. This guy's career is out of control. At any rate, uh, so she puts him into a hypnosis state because she's seen it happen before. And... Mm-hmm. 
as she's about to suggest the nothing dream, she kind of she kind of panics, which fair enough. She's like, oh, how's this subconscious going to interpret nothing if this is how he interprets world peace? So she pulls back and she's like, hey, what about you just have a really nice dream where everything's okay and the aliens left the moon? George wakes up, aliens have left the moon and they're now invading Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a literal guy. You, you got to be real careful what you tell this man. <laughs> I do like, though, that she uh, she was actually there to witness Haber doing the dream and saw that there's problems and still thought, I bet I could do better. I'm going to throw this in. Yeah, but she didn't. She did exactly what Haber did. It's just like she wasn't any more specific. Uh, yeah, I mean, she she took a swing, but it was she didn't think it up before she got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just sort of like it is. I think she's panicking because she starts by saying uh, Haber is going to be honest with you. And he's going to be straight with you and you're going to be able to work with him and he's going to be well-intentioned. And then she just sort of slips in right at the end. Like, oh, and the aliens are off the moon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what did I come in here for? All oh, right, aliens. Yeah, yeah they're gone. <laughs> yeah, like... At any rate, they, they, they hop in her uh, boxy little smart car she drives, which I thought was quite cute. <laughs> and uh, head off to see Dr. Haber. Because I guess, is that it? I don't remember this happening in the movie, but maybe it did. Because they're like, let's go to Haber. We're going to have to help get him to help us fix this. And I was a little bit like, I mean, I get he's the only person you can go talk to about this stuff. But is the idea that, like, she attempted to, like, fix Haber in the dream as well? I think it's a little bit of that and a little bit of just they they don't know what else to do. Yeah, I mean, things are getting way out of control now. Something has got to be done. Because the aliens are invading. Apparently, they have the technology to abort their mission, their uh, missile control system. So the missiles aren't working. They're out of options. Yeah. And uh, they get back. To uh, Haber's office, he's he's really updated this dream machine in the meantime because uh, now you don't gonna have to get chokeholded anymore. Uh, he just pushes <laughs> a button and you're automatically hypnotized now. It is interesting to note though, at the very first time we see George go into Haber's office, I think the dream machine was just essentially a couch with two like glass bowls over his head, mm-hmm. and then it became like a big headset. Then it's like now like a tiara, and I think at the end he doesn't even need to have anything. He's just like, yeah, yeah he's you're in like a dream. A weird dome by the end you get into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yes, this time they knock him out. Haber's dream suggestion is, hey, stop the invasion in your dream, and you know what? Everybody is at peace now. This is the dream. Have those two thoughts in your dream this time. And while George dreams, an alien materializes behind Doctor Haber, and the informs him in his dulcet tones, hey, we're not a hostile race. We're only here to seek a peaceful coexistence. Uh, to which Haber says, I'm not really the guy you got to talk to about yeah. ending the war. You've kind of come to the wrong place. And the alien very politely excuses itself. <laughs> it just shuffles Pardon out of the my room. interruption. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, my bad, sir. I'll go talk to the president. Nice to meet you, though. Yeah. Um, but essentially the idea being the war has ended. The aliens are just here to hang out and like live with among us very peacefully. And George wakes up and is explained that, like, what's happened. And I really like this. George just starts laughing. He's like, it's just a friendly invasion. He finds this all hilarious now. Yeah. He's just, like, really enjoying the insanity every time he wakes up. Yeah, at this point, George is, like, almost flippant about it. Like, he's just like, just an alien. Nice guy. You talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> friendly invasion? What could, more could you ask for? Uh, and then they... He leaves with Lalash and they head down to the, I guess, the Haber Institute's lunchroom where they go to get some uh, turbo fish for lunch. Oh, it's my favorite. It's my favorite line in the entire movie. Just apropos of nothing, they're eating. He's like, guy, I hate turbo fish. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so good. 
Um, but lunch is interrupted when Dr. Ho- Haber comes down with some goons because he's just like, yo, George, I'm very close to curing you of effective dreaming. I've isolated it on this 12 seconds of brain activity, I guess, where your dreams rewrite reality. So I'm just going to haul you back up to my new, my newer ominous dream machine. It's even mm-hmm. scarier than before. I'm going to hypnotize you what, again, and we're going to see if we can, like, fix all of these problems. I, I'm not going to learn any lessons from anything that's happened. We're still mm-hmm. doing this. And it's, the room is almost like a surgery theater now at this point. Yeah, it's it gets more and more epic every time he goes to this dream machine. And they put George back under into hypnotosis state. And one of the assistants is looking at the machines and informs him that, like, they're having trouble, I guess, doing whatever this machine's supposed to do, I guess, to remove the effect of dreaming because George is resisting it inside the dream. And I only mention this because uh, this is my favorite part because Haber's so frustrated. He just really wants to force the effective dreaming out of George into his machine. And I believe he's, he gets so mad. He's just like, oh, this man and his stupid chicken brain. <laughs> and I just loved how mad he was. And he's just like, chicken brain. I'm like, hmm, interesting. I also, I don't know if it's in this exact moment, but the there's like a screen and i think the word the word like resisting yes. flashes up so yeah, yeah. we know the, that the computers George... do the short the sh- the work for the for the <laughs> yeah. movie where they just it keeps telling you what's happening it's like yeah. he's in a dream now uh-oh yeah. dream problems <laughs> i did like that too when you see him going into dream states like they're like we have to wait till you get to our uh, to rem sleep and like you just see a computer just like sleep stage one two three four i'm like i guess four is rem sleep <laughs> <laughs> like it just counts down for you thanks thanks machine um but yes at this moment, we go into George's dream, and we kind of get the uh, really strange dream sequence where an alien appears to him. And I guess this is an attempt to kind of give a little bit of exposition as to what's happening. I'm sure this is directly from the book, and you can fill me in. But, like, essentially, the alien is telling George kind of, you can only control this power at the source. And that, like, people who have this power, the aliens call them sons of heaven because I guess they, they see it as something from, from uh, like the ability to change, I guess, reality as a god. And then this is where the title comes up is, is uh, the alien says that people who are unable to understand the power will be destroyed on the lathe of heaven. And it, it's all very existential and mysterious, but I guess this is kind of where it's saying this idea of like George either needs to lock in how to control this or he in reality will be just like torn asunder, I guess is basically what's supposed to be come out of this very existential mysterious dream yeah there's some and i'm not going to try and say who it's from that quote because i'll misquote it but it is like a taoist quote mm. um which is you can see sort of in a lot of ursula's work is that the universe has a balance and people shouldn't upset that balance okay that makes sense yeah i, I mean i got that from this it's, it's interesting because as we get into this latter half of the movie we're getting into the more esoteric ideas and things happening in the mind of the dreamscape that becomes harder and harder to visualize. So there's a bit more open to interpretation stuff that starts happening, mm-hmm. which I did, which I liked. But it, it's, it's interesting. Like I have to think about these scenes after I watch them. And be like, what what did that mean? What, where are we going with that? And there is sort of a suggestion that like the aliens have a name for what it is that George can do. Okay. And so it's kind of I get again like I guess it's open to interpretation. Like, is this a thing that happens in the universe? Yeah, the, the idea the that maybe other people it. have it as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At any rate, well, well, George is kind of having this dream where we're kind of getting a bit of exposition. Uh, Dr. Haber does have a suggestion for how to help the world again. So he gives George a suggestion something to dream about. And this time he says, hey, why don't you dream about ending racism? Uh, which was great because when George w- wakes up, how he's ended racism is like a Twilight Zone episode come to life. Yeah. 
It is funny, though, because if this had a different tone, this is almost like like a broad comedy. You're asking someone to do something and they take it so literally that uh, hilarious results come from everything. But yeah, he says to him, stop racism so that everyone's gray, <laughs> like literally gray. They've, <laughs> they've painted every single actor and there's huge crowd scenes where they painted yeah. everyone gray, dyed ever like or peppered everyone's hair white. Honestly, for a moment, I thought this was the end of the sh- movie. It felt like oh such God. a Twilight Zone ending. I was like, if this was a Twilight Zone episode, this is where it would stop, basically. Yeah. Um, but Haber loves it. He's like, oh, he's it's finally, like the one time. Finally, yeah. all I've been asking for is great people this whole time. <laughs> perfect pitch, perfect this time, George. You nailed it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chicken Brain. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, which I like kind of found this very interesting because, like, I, I I'm sort of interpreting what's happening here is every time they go into this more upgraded dream machine. Dr. Haber seems to be getting closer and closer to his solution to what he wants to happen. So now that everyone's gray, which he's very happy about, he mm-hmm. informs George that, like, this time, this next dream, he's actually going to be able to cure him of his problem. He's going to be able to end effective dreaming, essentially by asking George to dream that he no longer can effective dream. That's the solution. But, like, the subtext is that he's built the machine big enough to absorb the power of effective dreaming. So... Basically, he can just, Dr. Hable will remove George from the situation. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hable will take over effective dreaming, fix the world properly. And George is interesting here because at this point, it seems like George has given up. Like, he's just like, he's, he doesn't care he's going to be cured. He doesn't care what Dr. Haber does. Like, he is so nonplussed about everything. I was just like, this is an interesting point for this character. He is, like, generally a pretty passive guy. Like, you do sort of think as he's going through the motions and realizing how out of control Haber's getting. I think our brains are so wired to the hero is going to do something that you do sort of keep waiting for like, well, George, I'm sure, has got a plan for how to handle this, but he doesn't. Oh, absolutely not. He is just like, (laughs) I do not care anymore. George just wants a good night's sleep. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they take, so he gets taken up to Dr. Haber's newest dream machine, which is a huge dome on the top of a tower. You have to take an elevator to get to. He calls it Haber's Palace of Dreams. Yes, that's right. Amazing piece of location work they found here. This like crazy, like 20 story tower with a huge dome on top. I was Mm -hmm. like, this is insane. Um, But essentially, George is now put to sleep, cured of effective dreaming. And the power to effective dream has been moved to Haber's Palace of Dreams, which I believe he says he'll be able to fix the world in about six weeks or so. (laughs) <laughs> it's on his flow chart he's like actually <laughs> he mapped it out um for george though there's has been a change to the reality since all this new dreaming to end racism and fix himself has happened is a uh, heather lalache is missing she just doesn't seem to exist in this reality anymore and sort of this new passive sort of lost george wanders into a a local junk shop he happens to be walking by which we finally come back to the aliens, which uh, Dr. Haber is implied are still on Earth because he's very insistent he's going to get rid of these aliens first He's thing. annoyed about it, yeah. He wants world peace, but God, he got to get rid of these aliens. He just does not care to see them around. They're not welcome where he is. But this junk shop happens to be owned and operated by one of these crazy aliens. <laughs> they just settled right in. They opened junk shops. He's just, he's just selling some antiques. I believe later we'll find out this really chill alien. His name is, uh, let me see if I can pronounce this. Eminem Anasa. Very good. 
I was really hoping we had we were going to see the aliens stalk the shelves because it moves. It has a, almost no hands. mobility, but we don't get to see that. He just stays behind the counter. It's kind of got one arm that he's able to move. Uh, the rest <laughs> of him is like just like this beetle husk that can't move anywhere. I think I don't know if it's clear in this, but like in the book, it's suggested that that's a suit. Right. I, I, and we never see what's under it. I got the sense that might be the case. I, I, it was whatever it was was very. He might alien. have great abs under there, is what you're saying. Oh yeah, he's very lithe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so George is just ch- poking around this junk shop, talking to this friendly alien, and just sort of saying he's just like he's sort of lamenting the loss of Heather and kind of her being missing. And the alien very he's very helpful. He recommends, hey, if you can't find your friend, like I said, I've got a suggestion for you. Take this vinyl single of the Beatles with a little help from your friends. That might help you find her. I mean, yeah. And he goes home, has a little nap, puts his record on, and he he falls into a deep dream of uh, the ocean's waves and having sex with Heather. Yes. And uh, in the at the end of this dream, she emerges from the ocean again. And when he wakes, she's back. They're in bed together, and she's his wife now. So all that practice with his aunt paid off, huh? <laughs> <laughs> There is, that is, I forgot to, when he dreams the aliens, I think it's worth mentioning, we get this shot of George naked for some That's reason. That's true, him and a turtle swimming around naked. <laughs> yeah, like, people are naked in his dreams. Uh, why? We've seen this in other shows too, where if you go into a dream world, you gotta be naked. Remember <laughs> Earth 2, Jordan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, your, your clothes can't come along. Um, at any rate, uh, Heather's returned... And actually, like, people's races have returned after this dream, too. She, like, they're all out of gray world. They're all back to their original race now. And uh, this is never explicitly stated, but my understanding from this whole thing is the alien was able to help George restore his effective dreaming by kind of, I guess because he's a creation of George anyway. He's like, if you go home and listen to this and you, like, want it bad enough, like, your effective dreaming has just been suppressed. It hasn't been removed mm. from you. You can you can return it to you and bring these things back if you want them. That's how I interpreted it anyway. I think that's right. I mean, he sort of mentions in the book, like, that it makes sense that the aliens would be on his side because he brought them here in the first place. So he's it, their daddy. It is, yeah, and he says to the alien that, he, you know, he's looking for Heather and he's like, well, here... Let me, let me help you out. Like, well, he helped help aliens out. out with their, like, small business loans to open those <laughs> shops and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but now that Heather's back, though, there's still trouble brewing because back at Dr. Haber's lab, he, he's entering this dream augmenter in the dream palace or whatever, and he's preparing himself to, like, finally use effective dreaming himself and rewrite reality. And as this is sort of happening across town, like, George just gets this sense. There's just something in the wind, the way the air is moving, that something is very wrong. And uh, he and Lelay start racing back to Dr. Haber's lab. And as he does, uh, George explains sort of why he can feel there's something wrong in the air. And he sort of tells her that four years ago, there was a nuclear war. And like Portland itself was hit by a huge nuclear blast, which is kind of what we saw at the beginning of this movie. It's like him wandering the ruins of the city. And he was dying of radiation poisoning. And as he was dying, he had a dream that he was alive, which I guess basically the start of this movie is like world he recreated for himself Mm -hmm. so he returned to this world after nuclear war via a dream that rewrote reality and we saw a glimpse of that at the beginning of the movie and um my understanding is like he's seen reality torn asunder or nearly destroyed in this nuclear war and now that whatever dr haber's doing is threatening to tear reality apart again that's why he can sense it in the world that's that was my interpretation it's like he can feel 
this re- like reality destroying apocalypse on its way again isn't that really his worry through the whole thing is that every time it changes it might come one step closer to this destruction that already mm-hmm. happened and he knows that if haber keeps having these grand visions it's just like instead of small steps there are huge leaps towards this eventual destruction no matter what you try to do yeah yeah and i it's, it was interesting like it's, it's, this is where the motivations get a little more like interpretive i think but like mm-hmm. it was it was i was just like i was on board i was like let's get there we gotta stop haber now there's sort of the sense from george that the world that ended was true mm-hmm. and that everything that has happened since is only being held together by the fabric of george's mind uh, it's interesting. I also thought, I was, I was thought it might be a reveal that this has all been a dream for a second. They didn't go that way. Like, they do establish mm-hmm. this as reality. But, like, yeah, there is this idea that George's mind is holding things together. We should say, though, uh, Haber has a great-looking bed, though, that he goes into. It's like a light bed that has an actual, uh, his body shape. Like, he's had it designed so only he can lay in the bed. I also want to mention, now that we're talking about it, because you mentioned his sweater at the beginning. And the way that Haber's wardrobe changes in the film, mm-hmm. I think, is so nicely done he just gets these like slightly better fitting they're like suits but they're like quilted yeah and they look very cozy but he looks good no i I agree he looks good it's like he's got a little makeover along with world peace you can have both why not why not make the world better and just a little bit of fashion sense yeah i mean there's also some hints of a little bit of fascism also happening because like i'm sure you noticed like the uh the people who were his um not doctors, but people that were working in the facility who had lab coats, they're suddenly now wearing militaristic outfits and things like that are changing. So I think there's supposed to be this hint of authoritarian isn't always the way to go. Yeah, I mean, it's Dr. Haber's reality or the highway, my friend. Well, he doesn't want any of these chicken brain people taking over. <laughs> but uh, as they're getting to Dr. Haber's lab to stop him, like the they have this effect of like the, the ground has started to split open and we get like stock footage of volcanoes exploding like it does seem like the world is in fact tearing itself to sunder and uh george enters into the lab and we kind of enter sort of a a, a psychic dreamscape here this is where it gets the probably most interpretive of it where mm-hmm. it's interesting like it's all done i don't know if you guys know this artist there's an artist named anthony mccall who he creates light sculptures which is what what he'll do is he'll take a projector and like focus the light into just a cone in a black room and then he smokes the room out so that the beams of light that exist are now be take a physical form like so you're like in a tube of light or you're in a star of light or like you can interact with it and that's very much what this dreamscape looks like is it's a cone of light that's all blue and like hazy and it you know i think we've seen it in other sci-fi shows but it it's a cheap effective way to show like another world kind of thing and haber seems very lost in this like light cone he, he doesn't know where he's going he seems overwhelmed we see weird hands reaching out of the you know, ether to grab at him. I liked it. I thought it was a great way to show like a dream sequence. I thought it's something that the show did really, really effective mm-hmm. was show that sort of other world feel of having a dream. Yeah. And, and George is able to enter this world and sort of pull Haber out of it. And I guess saving reality, like the, the entire sequence sort of ends with George grabbing Haber out. And then you see a, a hand sort of close on a beam of light, like crushing it out of existence. And then from this like very interpretive dream sequence, we hard cut and uh, George, he's back at that junk shop, but in this reality, he works there. His boss is Eminem and Asa. They're hanging out. They're having a nice time. They're best time. friends. <laughs> Him and this alien just run this junk store together. And uh, into that junk store walks Heather Lalash. And uh, in this new reality, they've never met. She doesn't remember him. They've never had contact before. But, you know, he tells her, you helped me once. You're a great civil liberties lawyer. You really helped me one time. Can I buy you lunch? And can we restart our romance from scratch? 
Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Mm-hmm. And on their way to lunch, they happen to walk past a, a nurse out for a stroll with their patient in a wheelchair. And it's old Dr. Haber. And he's catatonic now and looking quite worse for the wear. Why is he catatonic, though? So I think this is like a, maybe a pacing thing because we do just sort of rush to the end here. And the suggestion, like in the book, first of all, he doesn't just find him in the street. He's, <laughs> he's Dr. Hammer is at an institute and he goes to see him. Mm. And um, the idea is that Haber has seen sort of the reality of George and everything that he's done. And he's seen 1998, which is when the nuclear war happened. And his brain is basically destroyed by the knowledge that mm. the world they're in either like isn't necessarily real or just like the horror of everything that George has been through. And it's just too much and it breaks his brain. Yeah, that's sort of how it's interpreted here, too. I believe they sort of talk about how he's seen they called April 4th in the movie like that's when the nuclear war happened so he's like mm-hmm. seen the world after April 4th so it's sort of just broken his brain and what's kind of interesting too is like as they're walking to the city too you still see like the cracks in the street we saw as the world was tearing itself apart so like it's interesting to see that this reality hasn't fixed itself entirely there's still scars from when Haber nearly destroyed reality for sure and the the hand I think that hits the orb that we're seeing here is that's George destroying the augmenter ah uh, yes 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 that makes mm. sense so the idea, and, and George has lost his ability to effective dream. And oh, I think really? even in the timeline of the book, the dream that George has with Lilash is before he's given the instructions by Haber that he's cured. Oh, interesting. So it's a, a little bit more clear that like George no longer has the ability to change this world and neither does anybody else. Right. He destroys it all in this moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not quite as explicit in the movie. Yeah. For sure. He really should have done that after everyone was gray, because they still got racism. Yes, they should have kept that one thing that everybody liked. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we get to kind of see a wrap up for Dr. Haber. These two are getting back together. And my got to be one of my favorite parts of the movie is they go and have lunch and they, they buy a street hot dog from one of those little alien cocoons who, yeah. just runs, who just runs a hot dog cart. And the credits run. They're just like sitting on kind of not a bench but they're sort of sitting over like a nice water feature and in the background is this the alien just waving its arm up and down selling yeah, hot dogs loving his job he's just so happy i was i truly have never been happier as watching yeah. those credits of that little alien just hawking hot dogs behind them it's an interesting thing too with how fast we go through it because one thing i think that you lose in the book is that like heather is everything to george right like Heather is the love of his life. She is the only thing in this earth that he really cares about. And like when he destroys the augmenter, he thinks he's lost her forever. Oh. He thinks he's never going to see her again. He th- and like his parents are gone. He had because they've still died in the plague in this reality. Like George is a man who has nothing and he has to like really sit with that loss. And in this it's like he destroys the augmenter and then cut to Heather being like, "Can I have that egg whisk?" <laughs> <laughs> Antique egg whisk, yes, please. I have to say, though, I like, though, she has it. He's like, do you want that? And she goes, no. No, I just wanted to see it. <laughs> I, it's like any junk shop. You're not going to buy anything in there. You're just no. poking around. I'm like, I'm just I wasting just, time in here. Yeah, I was just being polite. So I <laughs> pretended I was interested. I mean, it, you know, this kind of brings us, I guess, to some final notes on this. But, like, Hillary, like, you've now, you obviously, as our expert, have read the book a couple times. Mm-hmm. And you've seen this. Like, how, how, you know, how's the adaptation? Is it, like, a decent adaptation? I think it's really well done. Like, I think um, it's a huge 
book. And like when I first read the book and I didn't know that this movie existed, I was thinking like, oh, if somebody was going to adapt this, it's going to have to be like Christopher Nolan. Right. Like, this is going to be the most expensive movie ever made because it's so high concept. Like that ending scene in the book, Mount Hood erupts. Right. And Portland is melting and it's like the buildings are collapsing around them and it's it's so high concept. So for them to be able to have done this with the budget they had, I think is amazing. It seems that most people have a very positive feeling about this movie. Like um, apparently people were really wanting to see this for years and years and hadn't been able to until it was on DVD. I should mention, though, it was remade again in 2002 with James Caan. I was going to say the same thing. And Lisa Bonet, and it yeah. looks terrible. Yeah, I when I found that, too, I'm like, wow, these those must be stark contrasts, these two movies. For sure. And this is, um, Ursula has said herself that this is the only adaptation of her work she thinks is any good. I mean, she's had some bad, uh, some bad misses, I think. She had some bad misses. Even, I think, um, what's the Miyazaki one, right? Yeah, well, that Earth, the one you read, or uh, Earthsea. Yeah, she said that Miyazaki could make an adaptation of that after she saw um, Spirited Away. And then he let his son direct it. Yeah. And she was like, that's not what I signed up for at all. My son can probably do it, right? Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. the answer is no. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, interesting to hear kind of that it's, 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 it was surprising to me. I was surprised to see how interesting and like complicated, like the book clearly, yeah. I can imagine how much more detailed it is but like seeing these two like video artists take two hundred fifty thousand dollars in 1979 you're like all right we can probably do this and do a pretty good job of it actually do a pretty good job and i think to be honest like some of where it suffers is that it is such a straight adaptation Hmm. um which is probably why ursula liked it so much um just only in that what i mentioned like with heather like so much of the book is internal right that in in doing such a straight adaptation i do feel like you lose a bit of that um sort of the struggle of or like even the moment when he is being so flippant like yeah well this is a world we live in now whatever like <laughs> this is a man who is tortured <laughs> well i mean this is probably a good time then like hillary uh typically we rate things uh, out of 10 stars very much like imdb scale what what do you think what do you want to rate uh, the lathe of heaven so i've been thinking about this and I'm, I don't know if this is going to come in high or low compared to... I think it'll be... I know, Jordan, you're generous. <laughs> well, it depends. Ratings. Depends what it is. But I think they did a, an amazing job. Like, I, I enjoyed watching it. I think the casting is really good. I think they were super creative in their choices. And I'm going to give it an eight. An eight. Um, great. Why don't I go next? Um... We watch a lot of stuff on this podcast, and this was, uh, for us on this podcast, a real treat, I have to say. Um, and I think, you know, there's some challenges in the translation. I think in that back half, it's a little more open to interpretation, maybe because it gets a little nebulous. It's tough to maybe to read character motivations a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, I like watching this, I was like, I was blown. Like, it feels like a cult movie that I have never heard of before. And totally. like, is great and interesting and really stuck with me. Um I think gonna I'm gonna go nine point five. I'm gonna wow. withhold point five because it does get a little choppy in the end. But I, in the end, like I liked it still. Like I liked how choppy it was because it made me think about it more and try to like interpret where it was, what mm-hmm. were the thoughts were. I, I'm gonna go all the way. I'm gonna go nine point five. I love that. I'm gonna go pretty good too. I think this is probably, if not our highest rated, one of them. I'm gonna also give it an eight out of ten. 
it has some low production value. There's no question. This is not going to be, you know, this was never meant to be on the big screen and it doesn't wow you with any special effects or anything. But I think the ideas come across and I think they found really inventive ways to take big ideas and scale them down without you really noticing them. And I just think it was a just a well done production. And that could just be also compared to some of the crap we've had to watch. And I think this was just really well done for what it was. So eight out of 10. Eight out of 10. What a a, a real winner. Mm -hmm. Before we move too far away from it too, I would be remiss if I didn't mention something I found out this morning when I was looking to see who did this adaptation and if I knew anything else that they had done. Did you catch that Diane English, who did the adapted screenplay, is the creator of Murphy Brown? No, (laughs) I didn't. So she's had a great career. That's incredible. From the creator of Murphy Brown. Yeah. The Lathe of Heaven. I like that. I like that a lot. Murphy Brown. I was excited. (laughs) Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Your expertise were very helpful. My pleasure. It was a real treat. And listener, if you want to uh, see some little clips of this, if you want to see what we're talking about for Lathe of Heaven, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Continuum Drag. We'll have some clips from the show up there. Definitely that little alien hawk and hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, that's in there. <laughs> that's a gift. And of course, if you want to contact us by email, our email here is ContinuumDrag at gmail.com. But that wraps it up for this episode. So listener, thank you for joining us. And Jordan, I'll see you next week. Antwerp. continuum drag is recorded in toronto ontario theme music by james rex seedler produced by jordan dulloch and luke black special thanks to aaron humes